Welcome to the Tech Meme Ride Home for Monday, February 5th, 2024. I'm Brian McCullough. Today, let me tell you the story of the most shocking AI deepfake scam we've heard yet because it's a warning to all of us going forward. An Apple Vision Pro teardown explains why eyesight looks so blurry, another sign that Google is losing interest in the web, and an interesting peek behind the curtain revealing the economics and motivation of tech media. Here's what you missed today in the world of tech. Something, something. Welcome to the AI era. An employee at a company in Hong Kong was tricked into paying $25 million to fraudsters who used deepfake technology to pose as the company's CFO and staff during, and this is the important part, a video call. Quoting CNN, The elaborate scam saw the worker duped into attending a video call with what he thought were several other members of staff, but all of whom were, in fact, deepfake recreations, Hong Kong police said at a briefing on Friday. In the multi-person video conference, it turns out that everyone he saw was fake. Senior Superintendent Baron Chan Shongqing told the city's public broadcaster RTHK. Chan said the worker had grown suspicious after he received a message that was purportedly from the company's UK-based chief financial officer. Initially, the worker suspected it was a phishing email, as it talked of the need for a secret transaction to be carried out. However, the worker put aside his early doubts after the video call because other people in attendance had looked and sounded just like colleagues he recognized, Chan said. Believing everyone else on the call was real, the worker agreed to remit a total of 200 million Hong Kong dollars, about 25.6 million U.S. dollars, the police officer added. The scam involving the fake CFO was only discovered when the employee later checked with the corporation's head office. Hong Kong police did not reveal the name or details of the company or the worker, end quote. So the thing that I find fascinating about this is, you know, you and I like to think of ourselves as sophisticated internet users, right? Don't click on links from people you don't know, scrutinize the actual email address to make sure it's coming from a reputable domain, two-factor authentication, the whole lot, right? But we, even us, all of us, need to start thinking differently. As Gurgly Oros said of this on Threads, quote, As those working in tech, we owe it to educate people around us on the massive fraud potential for AI. You should absolutely be distrustful of video calls, phone calls, emails, DMs on social media. Assume it could be a deepfake even if it looks real, end quote. Exactly. Most scams work via social engineering, right? And until now, proof of life in a way, in the form of, oh, that clearly has to be that person. They look and sound like them. Look, this is their LinkedIn profile. Hey, they just FaceTimed me. Must be them. All of that is out the window now. Quoting AI Frey on threads, this is the most shocking AI deepfake crime reported to date. It sounds like the kind of AI-related threat that policymakers should be far more concerned about. Case in point, there's nothing in the EU AI Act that would serve to prevent a crime of this pattern in the EU. Nothing, end quote. Right on schedule, iFixit has an Apple Vision Pro teardown. Among other things, they say they learned that it's not great repairability-wise, has an unforgivable proprietary battery plug, and they think they figured out why those eyesight fake eyes look so blurry from the outside. Quote, It turns out that when the eyesight displays your eyes, it isn't just displaying a single video feed of your eyes. It's showing a bunch of videos of your eyes. Exploring inside the glass shell, we found three layers for the front-facing display. A widening layer, a lenticular layer, 
and the OLED display itself. Apple wanted to achieve something very specific, an animated 3D-looking face with eyes. They had to make very strategic design choices and compromises to accomplish this. Human brains are very sensitive to faces and expressions. It's why the uncanny valley is a thing, and part of that is depth sensing. Apple needed to create a believable 3D effect. One reason why 3D renderings don't look truly 3D is because they lack a stereoscopic effect. For something to look 3D, we need to see subtly different images with each eye. The Vision Pro tackles this problem with lenticular lenses. A lenticular lens displays different images when viewed from different angles. You can use this effect to simulate movement with two frames of an action, or you can create a stereoscopic 3D effect with images of the same subject from different angles. The Vision Pro has a lenticular layer on top of the exterior OLED panel. Vision OS renders multiple face images, call them A and B, slices them up, and displays A from one angle serving your left eye, and B from another serving your right eye. This creates a 3D face via the stereoscopic effect. And those angles are tiny, and they are legion. It takes a fancy, evident, scientific microscope to really see what we mean. There are compromises to this approach, however. The horizontal resolution is dramatically reduced, being divided between each of the multiple images. For example, if two images are displayed on a 2,000-pixel wide display, each image has only 1,000 horizontal pixels to work with. Even though we don't know the resolution of the display, nor do we know the number of images being interwoven, the resolution is necessarily reduced, and that is a major reason why eyesight eyes seem blurry. In front of the lenticular layer is another plastic lens layer with similarly lenticular ridges. This layer appears to stretch the projected face wide enough to fit the width of the Vision Pro. Removing this layer and booting the Pro showcases some very oddly pinched eyes. Additionally, the lens likely limits the effective viewing angle, limiting the effect to directly in front of the Vision Pro limits artifacting you might see at extreme angles, sort of like a privacy filter. The downside is that you're passing an already complex blurry image through yet another layer of lens. This makes it even blurrier and darker." End quote. Folks, I'm telling you that the underlying structure of the web as we've understood it for 25 years is shifting right now under our feet. Another case in point, Google has dropped the cache link from search results snippets. They did this apparently last week, and they plan to remove the cache functionality entirely, quote, in the near future, quoting The Verge. The cache feature historically lets you view a web page as Google sees it, which is useful for a variety of different reasons beyond just being able to see a page that's struggling to load. SEO professionals could use it to debug their sites or even keep tabs on competitors, and it can also be an enormously helpful news-gathering tool, giving reporters the ability to see exactly what information a company has added or removed from a website and a way to see details that people or companies might be trying to scrub from the web. Or... If a site is blocked in your region, Google's cache can work as a great alternative to a VPN. The removal of Google's cache links has been taking place gradually over the past couple of months and isn't complete just yet. Over at Search Engine Roundtable, Barry Schwartz spotted that the links were disappearing intermittently from search results in early December and then removed entirely as of the end of January. In his tweet, Danny Sullivan of Google confirmed that in addition to removing the links, the cache search operator will also be going away, quote, in the near future. Although the cache links are only now being discontinued, the writing's been on the wall for a while. In early 2021, Google developer relations engineer Martin Split said the cache view was, quote, basically an unmaintained legacy feature. 
It doesn't sound like Google has any immediate plans to replace the feature, but Sullivan says he hopes that Google could add links to the Internet Archive that could instead be used to show how a web page has changed over time. No promises, he cautioned. We have to talk to them, see how it all might go, involves people well beyond me, but I think it would be nice all around, end quote. So we joke all the time on the show about Google deprecating features like hot potatoes, but this is them literally deprecating the caching of the web. The web, the thing that they were built to index. We know Google eliminated the don't be evil part of their motto years ago, but remember this part of the motto, quote, Google's mission is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful, end quote. As I've been suggesting, Google's strategy and motivations as a company are changing and perhaps organizing the world's information and making it universally accessible, starting with the web, it might not be a core part of Google's mission anymore. Shipping can make or break a sale. As your business grows, ShipStation can help optimize how you ship your orders so you can stay competitive while you scale up. Whether you're shipping 100 packages a month or thousands, ShipStation lets you automate routine shipping tasks and easily handle returns. The free trial made it easy for me to get started with ShipStation, and I found it incredibly simple to use. You can manage orders, print labels, compare rates, optimize every shipment, and automate delivery notifications, rules and automation. Automations allow you to print shipping labels at the click of a button, and ShipStation has effortless integration everywhere you sell online, including Amazon, Walmart, Shopify, and more. But the core of ShipStation is their industry-leading discounted rates from USPS, UPS, DHL, and Global Post, with discounts up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. Over 130,000 companies have grown their e-commerce businesses with ShipStation, and 98% of companies that stick with ShipStation for a year become customers for life. Optimize and keep your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Use promo code RIDE today at ShipStation.com RIDE to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com RIDE, promo code RIDE for a free 60-day trial. Real talk. 52% of men over 40 experience some form of ED between the ages of 40 and 70. But it's always been a taboo topic. Thankfully, HIMSS is changing that by providing affordable access to ED treatment all online. HIMSS provides access to clinically proven generic alternatives to Viagra and Cialis, up to 95% cheaper with options as low as $2 per dose. The process is simple and 100% online, no uncomfortable doctor's visits. Answer a series of questions on their site and a medical provider will determine the right treatment option. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No insurance needed. Pay one low price for your treatments, online visits, ongoing shipments, and provider messaging. Hims has hundreds of thousands of trusted subscribers, so if ED is getting you down, it's time to change that. Start your free online visit today at hims.com ride. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash ride for your personalized ED treatment options. Hims.com slash ride. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See website for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Finally today, we didn't get to cover this, but TechCrunch laid off about eight employees last week and announced that it is winding down TC+, which was its paid subscription product, launched back in 2019. Danny Crichton 
is now the editor-in-chief of media for Lux Capital. Danny was the one who interviewed me for their securities podcast a couple months ago, which I shared as a bonus episode. But before his current job, Danny was executive editor of TechCrunch and helped launch TC+. This weekend in his securities newsletter, Danny outlined how and why TechCrunch had to do these layoffs, and I thought it was interesting to share some bits of this with you, because it sheds some light on the economics of the tech media that we quote from all the time on this show. Read the whole thing for explanations of why TC Plus went away, but also listen to this and understand in a way that we've not really talked about some of the motivations behind how tech gets covered and reported. Quote, What's striking about TechCrunch is its longevity. It's become the rare survivor of the graveyard of digital media, surviving successive waves of rapid change since its founding in 2005, before the launch of the iPhone, and just a year after Mark Zuckerberg debuted Facebook. Its business secret was simple but hard to replicate and equally hard to scale. Its ad space was much more valuable than other digital media companies, and it had a terrific and consistent events business. On ads, TechCrunch became a key battleground between tech companies for the hearts and minds of its audience of early-stage founders who might accidentally be locking in purchase decisions worth hundreds of millions of dollars as they built their startups. Profitably for TechCrunch, its ads were bought to lock out competitors in massive multi-billion dollar markets. TechCrunch's beat coverage is on new startups disrupting the old incumbents, and those incumbents wanted to be sure that no one forgot they were still in the fight. That gave TechCrunch key leverage on its ad space that few other digital media companies could match. Against a culture-focused site like HuffPost, a sister brand for a while via AOL and then Oath and then Verizon Media, TechCrunch's ad space could be five to ten times more valuable on a CPM basis, the standard ad metric of a thousand page views. Matching those revenues was a structural advantage in terms of traffic. As one of the most venerable sites covering tech on the web, major announcements from Elon Musk, Tesla, Apple, Facebook, and other big technology companies drove heavy traffic to TechCrunch. Most of this was relayed via Google Search and Google News, and at times, more than 90% of the site's traffic came from just those two sources. Critically, this coverage was eminently affordable. Writing up an article on the latest ravings of Elon Musk might take about 15 minutes. There usually wasn't that much to say other than his statement, after all. But that one article could drive 100,000 page views or more. That was the secret treasure that funded the real in-depth reporting. Cheap coverage of a big tech company coupled with the lucre of comparatively extraordinary ad revenue. For the business side, TechCrunch's focus on startups required second-order thinking. Startup-related articles got a fraction of the readership of an article on Apple, since no one is searching on Google for the name of a startup they have never heard of before. So why bother? Indeed, many of TechCrunch's now-dead competitors didn't bother. The key insight, though, is that these articles attract the startup CEOs and founders, and it is precisely this demographic that is so valuable for advertisers. Startup coverage was a form of service journalism, and one that happened to create a perpetual revenue machine. The other half of TechCrunch's business is events, and namely Disrupt. Disrupt attracts around 10,000 attendees per year, and the fruits of that service journalism on startups kept on giving. Disrupt offered founder pass packages that were quite affordable, even for the youngest companies, while charging eye-watering sums for business executives from legacy technology companies, the economic price discrimination is and was brilliant. Make sure the cool kids are there, and then charge the so-called grown-ups to be around them. TechCrunch's events were more profitable compared to the industry norm, since most of them were local to San Francisco. None of the speakers were paid, 
panels could be constructed by accomplished beat writers who already knew who should be there, greatly reducing the number of event planners required, and the site itself became the best advertising medium to sell tickets and sponsorships, vastly reducing marketing costs. The unique economics for TechCrunch around advertising and events funded the organization well, but they have an obvious flaw. They don't really scale. There isn't an infinite universe of big tech companies or venture-backed bubble companies willing to spend lavish sums on ad space. As for events, they rarely get better with ever more attendees, and it's hard to replicate the scarce thrill of a flagship event multiple times per year. If TechCrunch's business leverage was graphed as a parabola, it was holding steady at the optimal maximum for years, not growing, not shrinking, but as sustainable as digital media companies can be this century. Extra Crunch as a subscription offering was meant to be the stabilizing third leg of the revenue tripod. Ads and events are both heavily influenced by global macro factors, but subscription offered a route to more predictable long-term revenues. When we were conceiving the new product in late 2017 and early 2018, the idea was simple. Offer compelling analysis of successful startups from both business and product lenses. That's where the idea of an EC1 came from, named for the SEC form S1 filings for IPOs. TechCrunch would cover the founding stories of companies, but also the intricacies of their revenue models and unique product eccentricities, such as how Patreon handles creator relations or how StockX built an e-commerce authentication team by hiring sneakerheads who obsessively knew every detail of every product on the marketplace. The most important challenge of modern media is balancing an audience's desire for certain types of stories with a human reporter's ability to deliver them. Unlike a tech company building an app or a cloud service, this is not an easy product to iterate. If you want to improve coverage of the automotive industry, an editor must seek out and develop a reporter who loves cars and understands how they get manufactured, what points of competition exist between companies, what auto economics are and how they are changing, and what disruption might look like for an industry in the years ahead. Passion plus perspective plus precision is asking a lot of one person or even a small band of reporters. Even if you can find that talent, then the challenge becomes one of compensation. If someone understands the venture industry well enough, for example, then they can almost certainly get a job at a VC firm and make a multiple of their media salary. Reporting on cloud infrastructure, they can triple their salary working at Amazon Web Services without the daily doom of media layoffs looming over their overworked typing hands. TechCrunch Plus eventually succumbed to its middling status, essential for the health of the business, but unable to grow enough. Just enough for writers to keep its editorial calendar sustained with analysis, but never enough to allow the editorial to truly flourish, end quote. If you're anything like me, then you spent all weekend looking at user-uploaded demos of using the Apple Vision Pro in real life on social media all weekend. If you're not like me and you didn't do that, the final bottom link in the show notes today is to a quick YouTube video I threw together showing you my favorite user demos that I saw this weekend. Talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>